working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. My interview today is with Seattle-based drummer, composer, and producer Matt Jorgensen. Matt was born and raised in Seattle, spent 10 years in New York attending the New School and gigging around town, and returned to Seattle in 2002. In addition to drumming duties as both a leader and a sideman, Matt composes for those projects as well as for commercials and web series. He is also a co-founder of both Origin Records and the Ballard Jazz Festival in Seattle. We're always accepting donations at Patreon.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast and want to help us keep doing it, you can go to Patreon.com slash Working Drummer and donate just about any amount all the way down to a dollar a month. Any amount is appreciated and every amount comes with a reward for you ranging from social media follows all the way up to a free video lesson with one of our past guests, including Carter McLean or Ben Caesar. Uh, or a feature on you in one of our episodes. It looks like we've gotten a few new donations in recent weeks, so we appreciate that. Please keep them coming, and thanks in advance. Also, follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, subscribe to us on iTunes, and leave us a rating and review there. So Seattle is a city and a scene that we've been wanting to hear about for a while on Working Drummer, so let's hear about it right now with Matt Jorgensen. Well, I was trying to trace uh, your your movement around the country from from birth, uh, and as best as I can tell, it uh, began in Denver. Uh, you ended up in Seattle, and then New York for ten years, and then back in Seattle. Is is that is that it, or is there more? Uh, almost, um, yeah. The, I, I grew up in Seattle. I was born in Seattle. Grew up in Seattle. Okay. Um, and I went to like a couple years of community college here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And then I went to New York in 1992 to go to the new school and was there for 10 years and came back. Um, the Denver connection, um, my wife's father is from Denver. Oh, okay. So uh, we would go there a lot. Um, and, and, and then um, I did this record tattooed. After he passed away, he was an artist mm-hmm. um, named Dale Chisman. And after he passed away, I did a record that was kind of based around – music inspired by his painting. So I, I kind of had, you know, in the last 10 years, I kind of have a, a deep connection with Denver. Tell us, we'll, we'll just start with that, that most recent project that you did. Tell us about, uh, uh, Chisman as an artist and, uh, and the music that, that came out of that. Yeah. So, um, I had had this project for a long time, uh, Matt Jorgensen of 451 and we had done a bunch of records and I was, in the middle of doing another, like writing music for another record and, uh, my wife's father passed away and that kind of, that project kind of got scrapped. And it was also this feeling of, you know, everything that I was writing was a cliche and, you know, it's like trying to do new stuff and invent. So, uh, so after Dale Chisman passed away, my wife and I were back and forth to Denver a lot and we were going through all of this art and for me, it was really inspiring to be around a different community of artists mm-hmm. rather than just musicians. Yeah. And realizing that their process of creation is pretty much the same as 
you know, music, you know, and, yeah. and also too like seeing, you know, we go through Dale's like sketchbooks, you know, you'd see the finished project and you go through his sketchbooks and, you know, we're in, you know, basically rough drafts of what he was doing. And, and it kind of just, it was a new, <clears throat> um, it was a new inspiration, uh, for me musically to be not around music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, and part of it was just kind of looking through his paintings, his book of his collection of slides that had been, you know, taken of paintings throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was one called tattooed by passion. And I was like, man, that's a great title for a song. I'll have to remember that. Yeah. And then, uh, it just kind of went from there. You know, I was like, I was fascinated by, you know, seeing these paintings up close and just seeing all the intricate details and trying to, you know, capture those as ideas. And when I finally did kind of say, you know, I'm going to make a record kind of based on these paintings. Um, I think I, I pretty much wrote most of that record in about a week, week wow. and a half. Wow. So it was like, <clears throat> you know, I was in this moment of just complete writer's block and then just, getting away from it and just coming up with this new idea uh really w- was was a great kind of process to go through and and so you know I'm eternally grateful for um you know that relationship and that and that record because I think that was kind of a uh just it 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 reset the way I kind of feel about music and the way I think about music so mm-hmm. and he was a fairly renowned figure in the art world wasn't he yeah, so my my wife uh, Rebecca was born in New York in the seventies. Um, wow! <laughs> and so so he, so so like yeah, so like Dale, like he had this whole career. You know, he started out in Denver. I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of like mine. He started out in Denver. He moved to New York and had this whole thing in the seventies, and then in eighties, and then moved back to Denver, mm-hmm. uh, where he really kind of everything kind of came together. I think both you know with his commercial success and so he's in the denver uh artist museum hall of fame something like that mm-hmm. i forget what it's exactly called but he's very well known and very well respected in colorado and in denver and was really influential to a lot of the up-and-coming artists um who are who are now you know the kind of mainstays of the denver art scene now right uh, so yeah, it's 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 I, I kind of never really thought about that, but it kind of <laughs> mirrors my kind of growing up in Seattle, moving to New York, coming back to Seattle. Right. Um, it was the same thing with him for Denver. Yeah. Yeah. I dig what you're saying about um, kind of immersing yourself in, in another art form for a little while, um, even if it's only for a day or an evening or something, going to a museum or going to a play or um, I'm, I'm just always fascinated by, you know, even even how uh, even though the the disciplines are different. Um, you know, I, I, there's, there are similarities I see all the time and just in terms of the, the process that artists go through and, and their, their kind of personal discovery and, um, you know, the, the struggles that they face, uh, artistically and otherwise. Um, did you, did you find some of that in his work? Well, yeah. And, you know, the thing that really struck me was that he was never afraid to reinvent himself. Mm hmm. And that, you know, at that each he'd go through a period of, you know, five years to a decade where, you know, if you looked at stuff from each decade, they looked completely different. But then they also but you could find similar traits throughout Mm -hmm. them all. Yeah. And I I think for me, you know, as as a drummer and as a musician, like 
I'm influenced by a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't I don't like to do. Uh, you know, I always consider myself a jack of all trades. You know, master of none. Right. Because <laughs> because I, I enjoy. I get bored easily. So I I don't want to just you know play in the same band all the time, playing the same music. Um, I want to I want to you know collaborate with different artists and different musicians and just do a lot of different stuff. And I think my career has kind of been that way in that, you know, I, I am primarily known as a jazz drummer, but I've done more pop stuff and I've done more, you know, my, I would say my, t- my three main gigs are, are my band uh, with the guitarist, Corey Christiansen, which the last few records have been like completely, you know, cowboy jazz for lack of a better term, but a lot of, <laughs> you know, I use vintage drums and a lot of backbeats. And yeah. then, and then I play a lot with the trumpeter, Thomas Marriott, which is, you know, straight ahead modern jazz. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think if you heard all, and then, you know, my band, Match Organs and 451, or my music, it's like if you heard all three of those, they're completely different, but hopefully you find the similar traits through all of them. Yeah. Uh, in the way I approach music and the way I approach the drums. Right. I was going to say a similar approach, a similar mentality uh, in, in any kind of music you're playing. Exactly. Yeah, I'm. I'm and dealing I, with the same thing myself. I, you know, I studied jazz and played jazz almost exclusively for probably ten years. Um, seven of which were in Kansas City, um, and I lived in L.A. for five years and branched out a little bit. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to Atlanta um, almost two years ago now that uh, I've really started getting you know, a lot of opportunities to play a lot of different kinds of music. Um, and it's, you know, for, for a while I kind of hung on to the jazz drummer identity. Like you were saying, I was, I was afraid to reinvent myself or just resistant to it for some reason. Um, but I've really enjoyed kind of like finding, uh, you know, finding my same mentality and finding my same voice in new types of music. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I when I tend to get snarky, you know, and somebody asks me what I do, I say <laughs> I play the drums for money. You know, it's <laughs> right, like right. I'm there to do a job, and it's a skill. And and um, you know, uh, if it's uh, I've gotten the call, you know, come down to Jazz Alley, which is the big national jazz club. It's like, you know, our drummer misses flight. Uh, can you be down here in 45 minutes and read through the next 90 minutes of our show? Yeah. And, you know, that, and that's part of the skill of being a professional musician. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of that gets minimized a lot in that uh, the it, it is a profession. And, you know, we have many different things that we're good at. And so, you know, I enjoy going from gig to gig and playing a Broadway show you know, one night and then playing in somebody's rock bands, you know, filling in for their drummer and then doing a jazz gig. Yeah. I enjoy all that. I don't, I don't want to play in a Broadway show, same show for six months. Right. You know, that, that has very little interest to me, but, um, I like the challenge of, uh, assuming a different role and, and making the gig happen. You know, that's really the cool thing for me. Right. I was, I was going to say, I, I, um, you know, I, I'm I'm more turned on by kind of becoming competent in something new than uh, getting really really good at something old. <laughs> yeah, um, for for better and or to, for worse, you know. And and two, you know, it's like you know, as a working drummer, you, you know, you're you're called into these situations where, you know, the 
the band leader wants something. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes they want what you do, and sometimes they they have a certain idea, you know. And, and there's that collaboration with somebody to say, you know, what are you looking for? What 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 do you want out of this tune? Right. You know? Right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can you can do that. I did a uh, movie soundtrack with uh, Ron Jones, the, like a couple a year ago or so, but it was. You know, it was this uh, sequence over uh, stock footage of, like, Vietnam, right? So you're the 70s. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, very much, it was like, you know, that was the thing. It's like, well, we're looking for, like, a Creedence Clearwater Revival kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. you're like, great. Yeah, I know. Okay. You know, (laughs) get my old old Gretsch out and... You go to in my superphonic snare drum and, and the sixteen inch hi hats. <laughs> yeah, but that to me is that's the, that's the cool part of playing drums is that you know I get to be lots of different things to a lot of different people. Right, right. Um, so tell us about growing up in in Seattle. Uh, I I think you. How old are you? I am forty four. Okay, so so your growing up time was uh, maybe a little bit before the the whole grunge thing. Yes. Well, you see, I graduated from high school in nineteen ninety, so okay. I think it was it was in full swing, but I was completely oblivious to it. <laughs> it was starting out, and like uh, I. Uh, yeah, no, that's my joke. Is like, yeah, I moved to New York in 1992 because there was nothing going on in Seattle. <laughs> but uh, and I, I remember that. Uh, I remember I moved to New York, and literally, like within a the first week I was there, I think Soundgarden was playing at the the Armory in Manhattan, which uh-huh. was like just down the street from my apartment. And I remember like all these guys were around, and everyone was like, "Oh, you're from Seattle? Soundgarden's in town tonight." And I was like, "What?" I don't know what you're talking about, but, um, <laughs> so yeah, I went to school. I, I grew up in Seattle and, um, the summer before I, I started taking drum lessons when I was 15 years old and I, my brother was taking guitar lessons at the local music store. And so I went in, I want to take drum lessons and there was a flyer there for drum lessons and the teach, it was for drum lessons with John Bishop. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so 20 some years later I have, you know, uh, I'm partners with origin records and origin right. Music productions. Yeah, my yeah. partner and all that is John Bishop. So, yeah. uh, so, uh, that relationship started with me walking into a music store and, and getting the flyer. Wow. That's and cool. so I took, I took lessons and then it was mainly just kind of rock and roll stuff. And, um, you know, I did stick control and the funky primer and, right. I wasn't a really good student. <laughs> I will fully admit in high school, I wasn't, I wanted to play in the who, I, you know, I, I, I love the who and Led Zeppelin yeah. and the Beatles and all that stuff. And then the, uh, the summer between high school and college, my dad signed me up for a big band at the community college where I was going to go on Tuesday nights. And I went in there and I still remember the, the, jazz band director jeff sizer we started playing i could play a swing beat but the very first tune he comes over to me while the whole band is playing and says in my ear he's like i can tell you have no idea what's going on (laughs) (laughs) he's like but it's okay (laughs) but it's while you're playing yeah i'm the only (laughs) you know there's no other drummer and he's like he's like and so uh i ended up so then you know he kind of like told me like okay you know here's how you set up 
you know, so if there's a hit on two, you want to like put a big bass drum on one or like how to set up. And then I remember, you know, after that Tuesday night, um, I called up John Bishop and I was like, I, I need to do a lesson. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And so he kind of talked me through it. And then, uh, uh, the next, I remember the next Tuesday I went in and like the, the director gave me a thumbs up, like it's noticeably better. Yeah. And so like I shedded that all summer and then I got into the, you know, I did the Jim Chapin book mm-hmm. and, uh, all that stuff. So and so then I kind of just you know I got super into playing jazz and I got in, I ended up getting into the that big the school's big band mm-hmm. that in the fall and then so I did two years and then um, the bass player in that band was my friend Tom Abs and he just is like I'm going to move to New York I'm going to go to the new school uh, you should go too <laughs> <laughs> okay I was like okay. you know and. And I, I still, I ended up applying for William Patterson College and the New School. Mm-hmm. Both schools, I didn't get in. I got waitlisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, but then I just ended up moving to New York. And I remember I walked down to the New School and just basically said, "Hey, I'm here. You know, my address has changed. So just wanted to update my info." Yeah. And then they ended up they ended up calling me back and said, "Okay, if you want to come, we have a spot for you." Cool. And then I auditioned and I ended up like, uh, I, you know, I, I was like from the time I did my audition tape to like to the time I went to school, like I was practicing like insane amounts and and got a lot better. And, and I ended up being in one of the top ensembles once I got there. Right. But but I, I always tell like, you know, if I'm talking to high school kids, I was like, all of you guys are way better than I was at your age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's hope. Hope. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your what was your mentality as a as a you know 19 or 20 year old moving to New York cuz I'm 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 fascinated with this kind of thing cuz I never moved to New York I doubt I ever will um yeah. but you know I I'm I'm always curious about you know what your what your ideas about New York and about the jazz scene there are when you move there and and if those expectations are met or exceeded or if they're just completely different um did you have like a a, uh, a specific idea of what you know you wanted your life as a jazz drummer to be like in New York, or was it more just kind of on a lark? I'm gonna I'm gonna move and see what happens. Yeah, I you know looking back on, it, I don't even know if I thought about any of that stuff. It was really just kind of like, yeah, this seems cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I I know I wanted. I didn't like. It was like I mean I'm from Seattle where it's it's not hot like it is in the rest of the country. So I remember, you know, we moved in the middle of August and it was, you know, I, I literally did not know what humidity meant until I (laughs) lived there. And so I was like, well, I, I, I wanted to move home immediately, but I ended up sticking it out. And then, and I think, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had no clue. I was just kind of there and taking it all in. It was all new. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I lived on my own. I, I mean, I had roommates, but like, um, I had lived at home until then. Right. And, uh, yeah, I was just like, I mean, it was an amazing time cause I'm sure some people know about the new school, mm-hmm. uh, as a school and it's much more institutionalized now. It was really kind of the wild west when I was there. I think the school, I was maybe there for the fifth, fifth school year that it existed. Yeah. And at that time, like, was there, was there even a brick and mortar structure or was it just <laughs> an idea around the streets of New York? Yeah, no, we had a we we had a a space. We had a floor. 
uh, we were on the second floor of this new school building on Fifth Avenue. It's okay. not. It's around. It's around the corner from where it is now. But uh, uh, yeah, it was. It was like you know. I think we had a bunch of these pearl drum sets with like twenty-two inch bass drums and sixteen-inch <laughs> floor toms. It was like, um, but but the amazing thing for me now, looking back on it, and this is what I tell people um, when they're going to college, is that like like so many of the people I went to college with, I still interact with professionally today. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like Spike Wilner is a piano player who now owns Smalls Jazz Club in New York. Mm-hmm. We were at school together, and Sammy Hell, the organist. Oh yeah, Joe Strasser was on drums. My friend Stefan Schatz, who we were in like the traveling ensemble for school together. Uh, Stefan, like he's 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 moving to Seattle soon, so um, like we just kind of reconnected. But and and it's and even I have this band Chamber Three with this guitarist Christian Eckert uh, from Germany, and and we were at school together. So it's it really it's kind of been my foundation for most of my career. Um, And I think you mentioned uh, Justin Varnes too, right? Yeah, I knew Justin uh, later. I ended up working at the new school for a while afterwards. And I think when I was working there, he was a student there. Right. But yeah, I mean, but so many people, you just, you have that connection. Yeah. Uh, For for those who don't know, Justin Varnes is a great Atlanta jazz drummer, professor at uh, Georgia State, uh, and a great, great cat. One of the, one of the best around. Yeah, and and you you the thing that I think most people don't realize that you know the key to a music career is relationships. Yep. And just not being a jerk. Mm-hmm. And and <laughs> and your relationship lives with you your entire career. And so for me, you know, I met all these guys, you know, we all all of us were fellow students. Um and then we all went on to have careers and those like everything kind of intertwines and circles back. And so um, it's, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I had no idea what I was doing when I moved to New York, but I mean, I'm so grateful now that I had that experience and that and I had that opportunity. Talk about, uh, your experience at new school a little bit, because it's, it, the new school has been referenced on, on this podcast many times before, but, um, I, I, you know, I think people should hear, uh, how, that education and how that kind of school structure differs from a typical university music program. Yeah. Well, the first thing that struck me was that, um, I could configure my class load so that I never had class before like one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, typically your, our, typically our day was like one in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And, um, you were always playing and you're always doing stuff. Um, the jazz clubs in New York gigs usually started at 10 at mm-hmm. night back then. Um, so, you know, we'd go to school all day and then go down to the village gauge or go down to Visiones or the Vanguard and, and hear music after the fact. But I think my first ensemble was Joe Chambers taught the, the drummer uh-huh. and uh, Reggie Workman, bass player. Yeah. Coltrane, everyone else was there. Um, I we I took the I had I was in the Coltrane ensemble, which was like an elective. So we'd play Coltrane music, and I, I still remember this one time we were playing Naima, mm-hmm. and the piano player didn't have a chart. So Reggie's like, uh, "Oh, hang on!" And he goes into his office and comes back with a chart for Naima that McCoy Tyner had written out for him <laughs> when he was in the band, <laughs> and so you know just to be around that um, the you know, to be around those guys who 
were part of the legacy of this the music that I was playing. I mean, right. they were there it's, for the birth of it. It's zero degrees of separation. Yeah. Yeah. And to, like I got to see, I got to when you know I was in New York and I got to see Arthur Taylor play. Mm-hmm. Got to see Max Roach played my drum set once, wow. and um, I I met him a couple times. I talked to him when we were in Chicago once, and when I went into the hotel restaurant and there was no one in the restaurant except for Max Roach. <laughs> and so I sat down. I sat down and introduced myself, and he invited me to sit down, and we chatted for like an hour. Oh wow. Um. So yeah, that stuff was just uh, that was just kind of the the way the school was set up. Mm-hmm. Um, that so many of those guys were there. I I ended up taking. I I still remember this uh, that summer before I went to New York. Uh, Modern Drummer Magazine had an interview with Kenny Washington, mm-hmm. and so I was like, well, I want to take a lesson with Kenny Washington. Like, I want to go to New School, and so that was that was great. Um, he wasn't is he wasn't as nearly mean as everyone portrays <laughs> in his lessons as long as you did the work he was amazing right. i remember the, i think the first time i went over there it was like a four-hour lesson for you know 50 bucks or something like that i mean wow. it, he, he he was incredible he was incredible yeah uh, so yeah i got to study with uh kenny and uh, joe chambers andrew surreal and carl allen mm-hmm it was pretty. It was a pretty cool experience. And I've heard that kind of to an extent uh, at the new school, you can not only set your own schedule, but you can kind of choose your own faculty, right? It's not like this is the, you know, it's not like this is the faculty at the new school, and you have to choose from them. I've I've heard about situations where a student, you know, finds a musician that they want to be their mentor, and the new school says, "Okay, go study with them." That person is now a new school faculty. Yeah, I mean, within reason. I mean, uh, they they were really good at advising certain students. I mean, as long as you, you know your advisor thought that you were ready for that, you right? Know, it's right. Like, you don't you don't want to go. You don't want to waste somebody's time and right. Is, you know, still getting their scales together, and then you're like, <laughs> I'm going to go study with Joe Lovano. I mean, that's not what that's for. But yeah, I mean, and you know, I I knew guys. You know, I knew saxophone players who were like, well, I want to go take. I just want to go take a lesson with such and such drummer and just play. You right. Know? Or, and, and that's the, you know, a bunch of us would be conniving too, that we'd say, okay, well, you're a bass player and I'm a drummer. Let's take both of our lessons and then, you know, go to this guy, you know, the saxophone player and basically just have him play with us. Yeah. <laughs> it's a gig kind of thing. Right. And, um, which, you know, is great. Uh, you know, we I tell a lot of students sometimes too. It's like, yeah, sometimes if you want to meet new guys or, or if you're trying to break into the scene, you know, just have a session at your house and pay guys to come over and play. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, in in you, you know, you really need to new the new school was good for me in ter- in teaching like initiative and just going out and trying to make stuff happen mm-hmm. because that's what people did because that's the gig that's the job is to just try and make stuff happen, make music happen. Right. And did you also learn about how to, I mean, there's, there's making that stuff happen logistically, but there's also making that stuff happen personally and, uh, you know, making, making a good personal impression on someone, not just your musical impression, not just like, you know, I can play, but I'm someone that you'd want to hang out with and create a relationship with. Yeah. And, and that, you know, again, like, um, 
I mean, they're, they're, like at the new school, we had almost like a, a mini scene in that, you know, on the weekends you could book up, you know, time. You could book the classrooms to do sessions and stuff like that. So, right. you know, you'd get phone calls like, hey, can you come down and play, you know, Saturday at one o'clock in the afternoon and mm-hmm. let's do a session. And so for me, that was just like, yeah, you're, you're learning the skills of showing up on time. Right. Uh, playing with different styles of musicians and learning what they want, what they want to hear, mm-hmm. what, what makes them comfortable and, um, and just how to interact with other people. Yeah. Just hang out and be, be a nice guy. Yeah. That, that seems like a really kind of nurturing environment. Cause in, in my mind, it, it seems so easy for that to devolve into just a shredding session. Um, like, like so many jam sessions do, but it, it sounds like, uh, the environment and the culture at, at that school was was uh, really collaborative and open, and, and everybody kind of uh, learning how it's done. And the the other thing that was that really struck me was, you know, I, I came from Seattle where I was, you know, I was doing gigs and I was going to play at, at the, you know, I didn't go to the University of Washington, but I'd be invited down to play, you know, for classes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I moved to New York, and like all of a sudden, like everyone at this school is better than me <laughs> or that was my perception and realizing that like, man, I really need to take this seriously or else I'm not going to, this is just going to be a really bad experience. Yeah. But then also realizing that, you know, all these guys, like you'd ask them a question and then, or, or, you know, people would say like, Hey, have you checked out this record or that record? Or, you know, we're going down to see Jimmy Cobb. Let's, yeah. Who wants to go? Right. And and that for as as a competitive as environment as it was and being, you know, a com, you know, one of the better conservatories for jazz music, it was uh, it was really supportive environment and, and people were really cool and everyone was just trying to play music. Right. And that was that was something I had never really experienced before. How did you make the transition into the the New York professional scene? I mean, once you were out of school, you're on your own. Um, what did what did those first few months and couple of years look like? Um, I I was just you know you just uh, did gigs. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was just you know I'd take anything and everything. Right. I did some like off off Broadway shows. I did uh, some big bands. I did some swing jump blues bands mm-hmm. i did some rock bands and i just do all the gigs and surprisingly there was a really active kind of scene in the village um i mean the gigs didn't pay that much but by the same token rent really wasn't that much right in, com- in comparison um so typically i was working five to seven nights a week just doing gigs i had like my subway drum kit right uh, i had a i had a 16 inch bass drum convert that i used or 16 inch floor tom that i used as a bass drum i took the, the front head off and i put like my hardware inside the bass drum and i'd strap it to a cart and have my cymbals on my back and the snare drum so yeah. i just play snare drum bass drum ride cymbal hi-hat was yeah like my gig thing right if, if the gig paid enough i could take a taxi like, <laughs> so um, but yeah, it was just kind of every night just showing up and doing all these little gigs and 
whatever whatever there was i'd play it right and did you like during your time in new york did you did you kind of were you, were you able to narrow the gigs down to to more of what you really wanted to be doing whether that was jazz or anything else or or was most of your time there just anything and everything all the time i mean i think my my circle was primarily jazz stuff um and I don't know if I, I mean, at that point I was just, I I was just so excited. You know, it was just this thing. I was like, I was in New York and, um, there was my whole circle of friends in Seattle that like, I I was kind of, me and Tom were kind of the only ones who had gone to New York at that point. Mm -hmm. There was, there was a whole group of guys like, uh, Jim Black and Aaron Alexander and Brad Shepik, the guitar player. They were kind of a few years before us and they had all kind of, gone out to new york but jim black is from seattle yeah i I think he's he's from bellevue okay but but same area yeah but uh so yeah it was just kind of i was just doing the thing right (laughs) whatever whatever and 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 whatever i could so um yeah we were just kind of playing gigs and doing whatever we could right right and enjoying a, a lower lower rent than <laughs> than yeah. jazz musicians have to deal with today. Lots of lots of top ramen, and <laughs> you know, if the gig if the gig paid or if, if we got dinner at the gig, all the better. So right, right, that's still the case for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. Am, it's amazing how far food goes with a musician. Like you know, the a, a gig that that does not pay enough money is is suddenly made you know quite a, quite a bit better if you get fed a decent meal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like one, that's the thing. It's like one less thing you have to think about, right? Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Wait, it's like even if the gig is like, oh, I'll have money for breakfast and lunch tomorrow, and I don't have to think about dinner tonight. Right. I'll do it. <laughs> so check that off the list. Yeah. Um. So what? Uh, why? Why the move back to Seattle? Um. I I think I had always known that I didn't want to. I, I didn't. In terms of living in New York. Like the day to day was not my favorite thing. Right, right. Uh, I, um, I, I so I, I knew that I would eventually move back to Seattle uh, around the time I turned thirty. You know, I had gotten married and uh, talking about a family possibly and all that stuff, and mm-hmm. so uh, it just seemed like the right time to move back. Also, so I moved back in two thousand two, and Origin Records had started. Um, John Bishop started in 1997 mm-hmm. and I had kind of just started being a part of it as well a few months after that. And so I did the website for the label and was, you know, we were talking on the phone multiple times a day and kind of working out, uh, putting out CDs and all that entailed. And so it was just kind of like this, this thing is kind of has a life and why don't, you know, it just makes perfect sense for me to move back to Seattle right now and kind of continue that. So I did that in um, the spring of 2002, and then uh, I moved into an apartment in the same building that John was in, and oh, then wow. we rent we rented out a third apartment. We rented out a studio apartment, which functioned as the office for the record label there, and so kind of that was really kind of started taking off right when I moved back. And then we also, that same year we started the Ballard jazz festival was the first year that we did that. Right. So, which took place in the block that we live. So, 
Man. And then that's kind of defined my life for the next 15 years. Right, right. So, so Origin Records and the Ballard, the Ballard Jazz Festival are are kind of two two parts of the same machine. Yeah. So we have um, Origin Records, um, and then I had started doing websites for the label, and then other musicians, and that kind of morphed into Origin Web Design, and and then we started producing concerts. So we have Origin Music Productions as well. Man. Um, so all of which, you know, I tell people all of which were created out of, you know, we had to figure out how to make stuff happen ourselves and how to make the gig happen. Right. Whether that was the record label or concerts or anything else. And so we just kind of figured out how to do it along the way. And it's kind of become this, this big enterprise thing that we do together. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, talking about making things happen i think i think especially in the jazz world but but in the music world in general um you know there's there you you got to kind of bring your music your product whatever it is you you got to find ways to put it in front of people because you're not really going to get invited to do so <laughs> very much yeah um, very very few do i think yeah and so um i mean for us it was in the i mean origin records started because uh, John was on, he, he played drums on four records that were all coming out around the same time. And he also was screwing around with graphic design. So he had, did the covers and then also played on these four records. And he was like, ah, we should just start a label and put it out yeah. all under the same label. And then I had recorded a record in New York around the same time. And I was like, well, I got this thing too. And then I was like, well, I could do a website for the label too. Cause I've been screwing around with that. And so that's kind of how the whole thing started. But, you know, this was nine, 97, 98 when there was still like functioning, you know, this was before the Internet and, you know, music online, all that stuff. So, right. Uh, but the thing was, no one no one would put out our records. So we put them out ourselves mm-hmm. and then we had to market it and we had to sell it and put it out there. So and slowly, you know, more artists were like, well, you know, I have. I have my record too that want to join. And so it kind of, it started as this artist cooperative. Right. And it was, you know, still to this day, there's a lot of great music that needs to see the light of day and that people want to put out. Right. Right. And so how, how do you market it? How, how do you get it in front of people? Um, you know, one of the, one of the beefs I have with, with jazz is, you know, the, the way it presents itself or the, you know, the way that it doesn't present itself. Uh, I, I think it, um, you know, there are a lot of ways in which it doesn't do itself a whole lot of favors. Uh, and I think, you know, when I, when I see musicians or bands or, or labels or venues putting it out there in a, in a new and creative way that kind of draws people in, um, I, you know, I, I give them, (laughs) I always try to give them props. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just like everything else at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to, you know, the relationship part of it. And, you know, for an artist, there's the relationship with your fans mm-hmm. and the venues and making stuff happen. And then, and the same thing I think goes for the label. I mean, you know, we, there's a sound to Origin Records and there's a sound that the label collectively has that we're trying to uh, maintain. And while also, you know, I mean, the artists have complete freedom to do what they do, but, you know, we have this connection to the people who buy our records and we're, we're trying to be as, you know, 
authentic as we can with that mm-hmm. and never take that for never take that uh never take advantage of that and i think the same thing works with venues too and and even our festival is like there's a vibe to our festival and we're lucky that people come back year after year without knowing anything about who's playing because they know it's kind of what we're into and what we want to present and what we want to share with people. Right. And you've, so you've, you've got, gained their trust. Yeah. So you need that authenticity and you need to take it seriously. And, you know, you can fool people once, twice maybe, but right. you can't make a career out of that, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, and the same thing, it's like, you know, you could be all over the social media and pump the, you know, pump your music to the end of time. But if you suck on the gig, you know, people aren't going to come back. Right. And, and it's it's it, any anyone anybody can do something once. It's the people who repeatedly do it. That's that's what takes the work. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, like, for the success of our label, you know, I always use it now. I say, you know, we were broke in the late 90s. And so now everyone's broke. But we figured out how to be broke better than everyone else you know, we're we're better at being broke than everyone else is at being broke. Right. You you guys did it first. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so you know, uh, the you know the DJs who play our records. I mean, you know, they know us and they know the quality that we put into the projects, and so they've been very supportive. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just that thing of like longevity and relationships are the two keys that have made Origin successful. And you mentioned like the sound and the vibe of of Origin Records. Uh, can you can you put more words to that sound? Uh, that's always a hard one. <laughs> I, I can't describe it, but I know it when I hear it. Right. Um. I. You know. It's. It's the. the I. 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 I can tell when people are not uh, are are a little bit disingenuous with like their music mm-hmm. and. And so I think the thing is, is like we want people to have the same feeling about music that we do and, and, and putting out the records. And, you know, if we ever have a comment, sometimes it's maybe about, you know, pacing of the set list or, you know, or the, of the track listings or, or stuff like that. But, you know, generally the, the, the artists in our family of origin artists, I mean, they're incredible and they, they keep producing great music and so it's it's something that we just want to be able to get out there so yeah. um i mean I, I think if if you want a simple term it's like our our sound is that of modern jazz mm-hmm. you know it really was kind of i mean going back to what you're originally talking about like like the grunge thing in seattle i think part of the thing that was made that successful is that we the those guys kind of just existed in seattle without with very little outside influence of other cities right and i think the same thing with jazz too is that we're you know, it, it before cheap airplane tickets. You know, it's very, it was very. You know, if you're going to drive from San Francisco, that's a that's a 16 hour drive or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, we just kind of made our own scene here, and and there was there's a sound to it. Yeah. Uh, so I think the you know a, a bulk of those early origin titles are all Northwest based artists, and and there's a sound to what we are, which I think is kind of like my upbringing which is like i was into everything you know i was into coltrane i was into led zeppelin i was into the who i was into miles davis so all of that kind of morphed into how i approach music yeah if uh if someone listening to this uh wants to check out origin records and wants to check out a couple of your artists who are who are two or three or four of them that uh that you're digging these days 
Um, there's uh, well, obviously my records, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the website's uh, originarts.com. Um, Tom Marriott, a uh, trumpet player from here, who was also in New York for a little bit. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vibraphone is uh, Joe Locke. Oh, yeah. Uh, has a couple records out. We have a Samuel record with Brian Blade on it. Damn. Um, couple Sammy Hell records. But then, you know, the drummer thing, too, is like, I mean, you know, John Bishop on drums um, is still is one of my favorite drummers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the records that he's involved with. Uh, Dana Hall has put out a record on his own. Kobe Watkins um, has put it out. So we have a fairly deep roster of great drummers yeah. on the label. Check yeah. out. And you can preview everything online, too. Yeah, cool. Uh, is it is it originrecords.com? It's Origin Arts, so O R I G I N A R T S dot com. Cool. If you go, if you Google Origin Records, you'll you'll find it. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer dot com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I had another question about Seattle because the the timing of when you left and when you came back was was interesting. Um, basically, the the time that you were in New York City was uh, the tech boom <laughs> in Seattle. Yeah. So so you left Seattle, uh, you know, kind of in one uh, state of affairs, and ten years later you came back, and you know the tech boom was just in full swing. Um, so did did the city feel different? Did the music scene feel different as a result of that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, um, it's definitely there. It, it was much more of a big city when I came back. And obviously, you know, I, I had visited and I'd come back and do right. gigs during right. that entire time. So right. I kind of I witnessed it. But um, <clears throat> I think Seattle, somebody described me the other day that Seattle's kind of like an older teenager right now <laughs> in that everything's just kind of awkward and crazy and we're trying to figure it out and you know, downtown. And, and, you know, the fear is that we don't want to be San Francisco and where everything gets pushed out without any kind of thought to it. Right. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, I mean, and almost like it's been more accelerated in the last five years than really in the 20 years before that. But hmm. like right now it's just, it's just insane. Yeah. But you know, we persevere and we do our thing and, uh, still a good going. place to live. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, the, you know, I have a house and it's, my mortgage is still cheaper than my rent was in Brooklyn, New York, you know, 15 years ago. Right. Um, so in, in that regard, you know, I have two kids and so the school, you know, they walk to school and, you know, we have barbecues in the backyard and, and in that regard, it's great. The other nice thing too, is when I go back to New York, you know, I, I enjoy it in a totally different way. Um, then I, did when i lived there so that part yeah. is cool too 
But I think, you know, it's just I'm I'm from Seattle. And right. that just describes, you know, kind of who I am. But, you know, the other thing, too, is that, I mean, I've been able I've been fortunate enough to play with many great musicians and many of my idols now since I've been back in Seattle more so than when I lived in New York. Right. So, you know, whenever I, you know, sometimes I'll look at um, old calendars or something like that, or even if I'm just feeling frustrated with where I am musically or something like that, you know, I have to remember to take a look at, you know, I've, I've been able to play with Mike Stern and Gary Bartz and Peter Bernstein, Eric Alexander, and just yeah, so many Stanley Jordan, like so many great musicians. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a really great experience. New, New York came to you. Yeah. Yeah. Too. And, you know, as, as it benefits, it benefits the regional musician. And, you know, that, I mean, that's the thing, like, I think for the generation before me, there was, there was much more of that, you know, guys would go out as singles and pick up local rhythm sections. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the older guys on the scene, you know, they, they played with everyone and, and they, they have such great stories and, and there's such a learning curve to that. And so, um, I think there was a, there was a time where everyone was touring with bands and now maybe it's gotten more, sometimes it's gotten out of necessity that people are back touring as singles and picking up rhythm sections. But, right. um, so yeah, I, I'm just, I, I couldn't I couldn't be happier with just the choices that I made and and I feel real fortunate for what who I've gotten a chance to play with and what I've had a chance to do. Yeah. I have a an aunt on my dad's side and an uncle on my mom's side who both live in Seattle. My uncle lives on Vashon. Um and I've spent a little bit of time out there. I I want to visit more uh but it just seems like such a cool city and in addition to the music scene, the food is amazing uh just geographically um, you know, scenery wise, it's a stunningly beautiful place on the sound there. Um, and it also seems like a city that really invests in art and, uh, you know, just, just things that benefit society and, and, uh, elevate culture. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I think (laughs) maybe I I gave it too much credit. (laughs) Uh, it, it, it we definitely do but i but i think like i think for you know and and i have this unique position where i'm both a performer and a presenter right right you have the festival side in that um those who present music you know we're trying to make sure that with all this growth that that still is uh maintained because it's i mean literally you go to certain parts of the downtown seattle like everyone works in tech right so everyone's right six figures or close to that or mm-hmm. so you know you, you want to to make sure that um everything that the, the the culture part stays relevant and not just kind of an accessory to your dining experience <laughs> right uh, and and venues and 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 a lot of times too that's just kind of you know the the art you know talking to the people who maybe support the arts and organize the arts and just say you know sometimes just subsidizing the actual art subsidizing the actual concert is a good thing you know not so much you know focusing on the you know a lot of times they'll focus on the educational aspect or you have to put an educational component to your concert so that you can get a certain grant right and i think sometimes that's maybe an afterthought uh whereas you know a lot of times 
the concert is the educational thing or for me, uh, you know, I'll tell my, my drum students, like, you know, you know, go to YouTube, you can watch videos of Philly Joe, or you can watch videos of Bill Stewart or, you know, Brian Blade and all these guys, which when I was coming up, none of that existed. Right. And you had to actually go see the person, but realizing like there's so there's so you can learn so much so quickly by just seeing somebody do something. Yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, how a drummer executes certain fills around the drums. Right. That's, that's the most valuable experience out there. I like what you're saying about making, making the concert, the educational experience, because I, um, uh, you know, I remember seeing a bunch of different concerts when I was a kid and there wasn't, an educational component to the concert. There wasn't like a masterclass or a talk or something for kids before or after the concert. It was just, you went to the concert and that was it. And, and like you said, just seeing that, just experiencing it, uh, you know, I, I, for me was, was more powerful than, uh, talking about seeing it, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's about playing the drums and, and the music and, and, bearing your soul for this next 60 minutes or, and and that's, that's the, that's the tricky thing with what we do. Right. And and doing music is like the fact that you have to be honest in your approach Mm -hmm. to the music and to the drums and what you're playing and take chances. You know, that's when the greatest things happen. Yeah. And, and, and the, and learning that, and especially too, like I, I remember this is a story at the new school, uh, going back to it. But Arnie, I had a, I was filling in in an ensemble for Arnie Lawrence, who was a saxophone player who actually founded the school. Mm-hmm. And I, I still remember this is that it was, you know, everyone kind of took a solo and it was drum solo. So I took like a chorus or two choruses and I kind of cued everyone like, okay, I'm kind of done. Like right. everyone else can play now. And Arnie was like, no, 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 no. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. And then went through another chorus and I'm done. He's like, no, 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 keep going. <laughs> and he, you know, he did that like four or five times. To, and I still remember the feeling when it like, like all I was thinking about was ending what I was doing. And then there was a the moment where I was like, okay, I need to focus on what I'm doing. Right. And I remember this feeling I had when it was almost like, you know, almost like out of body where I stopped thinking about what I was playing and I just played. Right. And, uh, that like pushing yourself that way. And, and, uh, I did a, I did a jazz camp over the summer, uh, where most of the people there are not going to be professional musicians. They're mm-hmm. at a school where it's it's not really their priority. But, you know, they're going to do other stuff. And I was talking to them about take what you're learning doing this and apply it to whatever you're going to do. Yeah. You know, we improvise. What do medical researchers do? They're improvising. What mm-hmm. do entrepreneurs do? They're re- they're improvising. So it's it's that thing of like pushing yourself to the unknown and not being afraid to go there. And so I think that's the real value of teaching music and to, to, for everyone to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the concert experience, when, when you see somebody, um, do that on stage, whether you're, you know, a a student or just an adult, you know, appreciator of music, I think, I think that has more value and, and stays with people longer than any masterclass or any Q and a session or, 
or any of that because I mean that's what makes kids want to do that like they don't see a guy give a master class talking about the history of jazz or the development of this record or whatever and say that's what I want to do they see a person performing in the moment like you said bearing their soul um, and and that's what makes them say I want to do that yeah exactly yeah and um, that's what we need more of You mentioned that you're, you know, both a presenter and a performer. Um, so with with all the responsibilities you have that don't have to do with the drum set, um, do you ever find it difficult to kind of stay plugged into the instrument? Do you ever sit down on it and say, "Whoa, this has been a minute"? Um. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, <laughs> and it's and especially, I mean, I think especially as I get older, and then you have kids and. Uh, you know, little league games and yeah. uh, all that stuff. You need to you need to set aside time, and that's something that I've been more focused on doing that. But I think too, um, I find sometimes that if I'll be away from it for a couple of days, and then you kind of come back and you forget all the cliches that you you tend to play. You know, mm, yeah. Like I'll I'll forget my standard fills, and I'll come up with new stuff, and um, just kind of uh, start with that. But definitely i you know i noticed like i need to warm up more yeah i need to do i need to do stick control on the practice pad uh more as i get older um i'll still go through the jim chavin book and do exercises yeah uh, it's so, funny time, uh, you made me realize like time time away is actually a, a double-edged sword because i i think of it in terms of like you know, if I haven't been on the drum set for a minute, I sit down and it feels it feels kind of foreign and like I, I got to warm up slower and uh, it takes a minute. But at the same time, it, it kind of gives you a clarity. Your your system is cleansed a little bit from all the bullshit you were playing before. Um, so uh, it, it reminds me of something my wife and I say all the time, which is that I'd rather miss you than be sick of you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and... Um... I I did, and two I think part of it is it you know it just comes with age is that uh, it you realize that you on the drums is not the most important thing in the world <laughs> or in the room right right I mean, right uh, I I we did this gig one time where we went up to um, we went, I went to Alaska and it was like it was a, a, a workshop and then a concert and it was like you know, two days of teach, just two days of teaching and, you know, critiquing big bands. And then the third day at the end of it, we were going to do a 45 minute concert. And I called the school and I was like, you guys got symbols there. Like, uh, I'm just going to bring my stick bag, you yeah. know, and people were, you're not going to bring your symbols and you're not, I mean, and I was like, you know what? 15 minutes after we're done playing, everyone will have forgotten what the concert sounded like. They'll, I mean, they'll remember the feeling that they had during right. the concert, right? But no one's gonna be like, oh, that's that ride symbol is just not up to spec. <laughs> uh, and and you know, and going back to the old guys, man. I mean, you know, like I, I still remember, like Max Roach sat down at my drums, did his like hi hat solo, did his solo, didn't he? Didn't even adjust the height of anything. He just sat down and played, and wow. it sounded like him. Yeah, yeah. So uh, part of it is just like, yeah, it's not that that big of a deal. So I think I tend to try and, uh, you know, I know it's, if I'm away for a couple of days or if I'm on, you know, next week I'm going on vacation, so I won't touch the drums for a week. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it's going to come back and right. then you just kind of 
you're like, how can I make this beneficial, right? How can I have new stuff? I mean, a lot of times too, like one thing I'll, I, I tell myself is like, I'm going to sol- okay, if I'm playing, I'm just going to focus on, I'm not going to think about what I'm playing, but I'm going to focus on, you know, hitting the ride symbol at exactly the same spot every time. And I'm going to, mm-hmm. here I'm trading fours and I'm just going to make sure I'm hitting the, in the very center of the drum. Yeah. So it's almost like I'm at that point, I'm thinking about technique rather than what I'm playing. And then I tend to, th- once I'm not thinking about what I'm playing, I tend to play cooler stuff maybe. Right. And, and and then I'm just playing music as opposed to just thinking, oh shit, uh, I'm out of shape. <laughs> Come back, and then and that can too, you know, and that's I mean that could go for anyone. That could you know it's but just like think about I'm gonna and and I'll tell students a lot of times too, like okay, very first thing, let's let's focus on our sound and hitting them in the center of the drum, right? So that and that cleans up a lot of it right away. <laughs> So it makes everyone sound better. Yeah. Um, so in addition to uh, all your responsibilities at, at Origin and the Jazz Festival, and in addition to playing, uh, you're really active as a composer. Um, I'm looking at you know the, the records you've done as a leader. You've composed music for commercials, for YouTube series, uh, and for theatrical productions like plays. Um, where, where did this uh, composing bug come from? Uh, I'd always kind of written, I'd always written music. Um, and so like on the early match organs and the 451 records, I usually wrote like two or three songs per record. And then I'd arrange some stuff. Um, the record tattooed by passion was the first one that was all my music. Hmm. Um, and then, uh, and coincidentally, that was the first, first one I'd ever gotten an ASCAP statement for. Um, and, and, and a couple of them were good. Cause it's that record still is, I think it's like six years old. It's still used quite frequently for NPR's morning edition. Oh, cool. Um, like they, they had the story about Obama's farewell address and the, the end part of the story, they used one of my songs to kind oh, of nice. take the story out. And, and so that was kind of like, Oh, like you write music, you write your own tunes, and they get used. You actually get paid, right? Ideally, um, <laughs> that's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was kind of an encouragement. And then I did, um, and I'd always kind of been fooling around with it. And and I have a my college roommate Jeff McSpadden. Again, going back to the college thing, he he he's a uh, composer for a lot of jingles and commercials and TV stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had called me to to play drums on a few sessions, and I did that, and then. Um, there was one time where I did, I did a jingle, uh, where it was like, I had gotten called from this music house in New York. They got my number from Jeff and they're like, you know, can you put together a rhythm section and be in the studio in like three hours? (laughs) And which is hard to do in New York, but was fairly easy for me to organize and put it together. And it was, you know, part of it was like, it's just like making records. I mean, I'm right. pretty good at producing. I'm pretty good at producing records on a slim budget, and uh-huh. that's something that I perfected over 20 years. And then, kind of realized on the commercial side, it's the same. It's the same type of thing, you know. So after I did that project, there was a couple more where I, I still remember. Literally, there was. I was in the. I dropped my kid off at daycare, and I was in the supermarket checkout line at 8.15 in the morning and it's like, call from New York comes in, can you be in the studio at 1 o'clock with a a mini big band? (laughs) And yeah, whatever it takes to make the gig happen. So um, just kind of doing that and then just 
realizing, oh, uh, I I could do this. Yeah. You know, I'm pre- I'm pretty good at that, and and I had always kind of ri- written pretty memorable stuff. I think I'm better at writing like more pop um, classical music than I am at writing jazz jazzy music. But mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I've done so now. The last couple of years, I've done some stuff like that, and. It's fun. I do. I do a YouTube. Uh, my friend Tim Tyler does this YouTube series called Moto Three Sixty. I was uh, watching that earlier today. Yeah, and so that was his concept, where he was like, he's he wanted an all drum score, right? And it's a motorcycle thing, Moto Three Sixty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so uh, some of those are like, so basically that involves me. Uh, usually one day a week, I'll just sit down and record a bunch of grooves and, 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 and other stuff. And after I saw, I, I saw he did the first two, I, so I sent him a bunch of like drum stuff and, and then I saw the first two episodes and I kind of, there certain became a certain rhythm to it. So now I, I kind of approach that as maybe making like kind of percussion songs. Yeah. So I'll do like a rhythm bed and then I'll do some melodic stuff on the drums and I'll do like shaker or cowbell or, different stuff to kind of give it different flavors um and then a couple episodes i've actually done where i'm he just gives me the picture and i'm actually you know creating the whole thing from start to finish but right um but i do i have like a a yamaha midi drum set as well so i'll use a couple sound libraries and stuff and sometimes i've i've even experimented with you know, the reaction time from the MIDI drum pads is much faster than you can do on a keyboard. So mm-hmm. a couple of them, I'll, I'll play a pattern on the pad and then copy it over to a synth bass part. Mm-hmm. And it kind of creates this cool effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it reminded me of um, kind of the, the uh, soundtrack from uh, Birdman, which Antonio Sanchez did, um, which I, I think is just one of the coolest accomplishments ever in drumming. Um, yeah. I, I got to see him do it live, uh, in Atlanta. He, he was like touring the thing where like the, you know, they would play the movie in a theater and he would be there live with the drums playing the soundtrack. Um, but, uh, I also had a, a little bit of experience with a, a similar kind of thing when I was in LA, um, a performing arts school asked me to compose some drum music for a couple of dance pieces. Um, and both in, in Birdman and in, in your, you know, the stuff that you've done with the Moto 360 and in the, the dance pieces that I did, I was surprised at how simple everything could be. Like I, I went into it with this mentality that like I'm, I'm all alone and I have to create this wall of sound all by myself. But you know, the, just the simplicity and the sparseness of, of what, you know, the dancers and the director responded to. And, um, you know, if I listen with a drummer's ear to, to things that you did on the, on the YouTube series or on a commercial, um, it's really amazing how, how simple you can get away with, uh, it just compositionally. Yeah, I tend to overwrite everything. <laughs> and then usually it's like pulling it out. And uh, I, I, there's this guy, Christian Henson, who uh, is, is a composer, but he also runs Spitfire Audio, which is a sound library company. But uh, on his podcast, he talks about uh, imposter syndrome or something like that. You know? <laughs> so you know, he's not classically right. trained. So, and, and I think the same for me is you think like, oh, it has to be this or it has to be um, – it's really, I mean, it's just like, it's just like drumming or music. It's like finding your voice, right? I mean, I play the drums a certain way. If I try to play like Bill Stewart or uh, somebody else, that's not 
authentic and it's mm-hmm. not it's I, I'm never going to be as good as doing what Bill Stewart does as Bill Stewart does it. Right. So, you know, what am I going to do? And I think sometimes too in my like as a composer, too, it's it's a lot of times realizing what are my strengths? You know, I listen to a lot of rock music, so I kind of gravitate to the more of the popish type harmony and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and and just and also too like I'm good at hitting things, so I'm gonna <laughs> play the drums and then also too use use the tools at my disposal to kind of you know put like I I'll run my drums through guitar effects and kind of create these beds of sound yeah. that are kind of undis you know you can't you're like can't really place it and just realizing that's kind of the the thing that I'm best at right and that i mean that's the kind of thing that gives you a a palette to work with as a composer and a drummer yeah and two it's like all the stuff we've been talking about it's the same skills too because um you know i'll I'll, a lot of it too is like i'll have the idea i'll have the concept and it's like you know you bring in other musicians to play or you bring in session musicians to play and, and so much like you know when i was when I produce jingles or commercial dates, I'm, I'm interpreting what the composer wants or especially if it's remote, you know, the files are coming from New York and I'm kind of having to like, okay, I think this is what we want. Or he wants like Basie at the, you know, Sinatra at the Sands kind of groove here. Um, and it's the same skills now as like when I write the music, like, you know, telling like realizing that I don't have to write everything out. I can just tell the bass player like, yeah, I want Sinatra at the Sands kind of thing. Or I want, yeah. X, Y, and Z. I want I want a bass sound more Motown, right? Kind of vibe. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just being able to relate to people and too, and and also too, what I always say: just don't be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm nice to people and appreciative of what they do, they tend to give me you know 110 percent versus just trying to get out of the door as soon as possible. Yep. yep. Don't don't be a jerk. Lesson number one in show yep. business. Well, thanks, man. Thanks so much for talking with us. Uh, you're you're the first uh, Seattle guy that we've that we've interviewed. Part of the point is of the podcast is to really talk to guys from guys and ladies from from all over the country and from outside the country. Uh, and Seattle is a, a box that I've been wanting to check for for a long time. So, thanks for introducing us to it. Yeah, and, and uh, thanks for everyone for listening. And thanks for doing this. And then uh, if you're ever out when you when you come out to visit your relatives, give me a shout, and we'll. I'll show you all the uh, the grunge Seattle grunge icon right. iconic spots around Seattle. <laughs> all the shrines. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Well, be well. Thanks so much for talking. Okay. Thank you so much. There you go. If you're around Seattle or planning to be, go check out Matt Jorgensen. He's really all over it up there. Uh, also, check out the Origin record label and the Ballard Jazz Festival. It sounds like they're doing a lot of good work to keep jazz alive and well. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer to donate a little money to the podcast each month. We appreciate anything and everything that comes in. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is back with you next week. Be well, play pretty, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.